Okay, so last week um, I opened a topic that I suspected was going to take several weeks because I want to go over one of the uh, lists that is especially meaningful uh, for practice, which is the, uh, the qualities of the five spiritual faculties. And uh, we'll have a chance to review them as we go along, but just as a reminder, they are faith or trust or confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And we talked last time about what it means to have this foundation of faith as that being the first thing. How is it that we undertake anything? Is that we have some sense that it's valuable and or that we're willing to do it or that we think it will bring a good result in a certain way. It's somehow important to us. And so those could be um, ways of describing this quality of faith. And all of these qualities are things that we have anyway. They're actually part of the human mind, but they're not necessarily directed toward a spiritual aim. They could be employed for that, recruited for that, and put into use for that, but they aren't necessarily. And so the five spiritual faculties are when we use these qualities of mind to direct toward a spiritual aim, such as liberation from suffering, um, or however you frame that for yourself. So uh, I thought about what to do tonight, what was kind of emerging from what I talked about last week, and I didn't quite want to just do like one week per faculty because then what you get is you get this idea that these are sort of separate chunked qualities like different elements of the periodic table or something and in fact um, we know from practice that things aren't so separate and uh, conceptualized so I thought I would devote um, Maybe I, as I went along, I would devote some talks to the transition between the two different faculties. So maybe tonight is faith into energy, and we'll see how that goes. So the, the transition from having confidence in something to acting on that, I think is embodied or in, contained in the factor of the quality of motivation. Right, so somehow we value and trust something and then we're going to act on that. So there has to be a matter of motivation there. And what is that? You know, how does that work in spirituality? Well, spiritual traditions will all give you external motivations if you want them. Um, they're really good at that. And so it's important to eventually come up with your own internal sense of what you're doing and why, but in the meantime, what people often resonate with when they come to a spiritual tradition is if they want to engage with it, they resonate actually with the motivations that are given. They say, yes, this somehow matches with what I want to do right now, right? So you you realize that there's an alignment. So um, I'll just give a bunch of examples. First of all, um, we need motivation to undertake a regular practice. There's kind of that initial motivation 
And it may be that we work with that for a long time, and it may be that we think we've got it, and then we rework with it again later, of restarting our practice. So this is not necessarily just a, you know, kind of a simple topic that you once you get over it, you're done. It's an ongoing thing. So there is a motivation to begin and kind of have a ground for our motivation. So interestingly, uh, the first thing that I thought of in this is that it's very well articulated in the Tibetan tradition. I will get to the Theravadan, but they have a whole um, set of qualities that are called the four thoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma. Isn't that beautiful? So the four things that we might connect with that turn our mind toward having the Dharma as a motivation for our life, as opposed to whatever else we were using. It's, we do not have no motivation or faith or anything. We always have something. We just may not be aware of it. Usually what we've adopted is what the culture told us. We should get a career. We should uh, establish that, get the house, get the picket fence, maybe the dog, maybe the partner, maybe the children, maybe the retirement nest egg. What we were given, we're for sure given a picture. And often the spiritual path arises when we aren't satisfied with that. So here are the four thoughts that might turn the mind to the Dharma. Um, The first is the preciousness of human birth. So there can be a sense that we realize that this life is something special. And however you frame that to yourself, in in a tradition that includes multiple lifetimes, often we're told in multiple realms that we could be born in, we're told it's not so easy to be born as a human. If you think about that, think even just here on planet Earth, of all the life forms that you could have been born as, this one's pretty rare, actually, compared to, say, the insects or um, even or any other invertebrates. The fish, the birds, a lot more of those than the people. But there are the people. And so, and of course, the capacities that we have as a human, um, we don't always feel the joy of those because our capacities come also with the capacity to experience tremendous suffering, probably more than some other species because of our our high awareness. But um, there can be a sense that there's something, there's a lot of potential in this this package that we've been given. And we see that, of course, um, we like to be inspired and motivated, and there are a lot of stories in our culture of people that have overcome great difficulties, or people who are um, disadvantaged in certain ways, but still are great contributors. Stephen Hawking just died a couple of weeks ago. I mean, look at that life, right? And so then we start to think, well, gee, you know, what about this one? Or we, we even just have an intuitive sense, so there's a lot here. And so that can actually be a motivator. It's a very positive motivator of wanting to reach our full potential in some way and not, not spend our life only getting sure that, making sure that we check all the checkboxes that society said we should do. So the preciousness of human birth, it's very beautiful. I think that has to come in there at some point. And for some people, that's the motivation to start. And then the others are maybe quite powerful and often are a little more on the dukkha side, which I find, so there's four of them. One is about the aspiration and three are about dukkha. Does that sound about right as far as the motivations? Because this is how a lot of people come to practice. 
So there's also impermanence. So this comes in many forms, the realization that things are changing. The things that we think we have actually aren't that certain. You know, we have our health right now, but we see people around us for whom that has disappeared very quickly. And we realize, that could be me too. You know, what's, what's so special about me? Uh, I could lose my health. Or maybe we really do. Um, or we have some other loss. We lose our job, we lose our partner, even to, um, not necessarily to death, but to divorce or, some, or separation, or to death. You know, somebody very important to us dies, a child or a partner or a good friend or a parent. Um, and we realize, oh, this isn't as certain as I thought, and it may not go the way I'm trying to plan it so easily. And so that can be a motivator. What could I find that's more meaningful than these things that can vanish so easily? What could I find that's um, a, a stronger foundation? And, and the spiritual practices offer that to us. So a lot of people come to practice through loss of some kind, impermanence. And then there are what's called in the Tibetan tradition the defects of samsara. These are all related, of course, which is the experience of dukkha, the, the general unsatisfactoriness of what we're given as our uh, secular motivators. Um, the defects of samsara include impermanence. We can't hold on to what we've got. But also that it's that the, the pleasures themselves are kind of fleeting and not very deep. You know, the sensual pleasures that we aim for, the nice house, the nice car, the fact that we have enough money to eat out at nice restaurants now and we couldn't when we were starving undergrads. Now I've really made it. I can go out to dinner three times a week. But is it that satisfying? And so there starts to be a sense of, well, maybe there could be something else, and that can get us on the path also. And the, also, sorry about this sound system. Um, yeah, just the general non-control that we experience. It's, we can't get it all together and keep it that way. It's frustrating to try to keep our life together, and it spends a lot of energy. We can get caught, we can get a feeling of running on the hamster wheel. And this goes with the defects of samsara. And then, as we start to ponder these things, and if we're, especially if we're somewhat self-reflective, as spiritual people tend to be, we realize eventually what's called in these four thoughts, the inexorability of karma. And so this is the understanding that we reap the fruits of what we sow. We may start to get that sense, especially as we get older. Uh, when we're younger, it can feel like we can get away with stuff, <laughs> or we can um, uh, cheat death, <laughs> or whatever. Um, but eventually, we start to see the pattern, if we're somewhat reflective, and we get the idea, oh, you know what? Um, when I live my life in basically an angry, irritated mode, I suffer, <laughs> and other people around me suffer. And after 10 years of that, I've mostly reaped a lot of irritation and anger. And we start to realize, oh, there's a motivation to cultivate the qualities of the heart, to cultivate the fruits that come You know, when I'm able to be open, and when I'm vulnerable, and when I 
admit my mistakes and change, when I connect with other people, there are fruits of that too. It's not only the negative things, there are fruits of positive too. And then we start to get the idea, oh, there, there is a, a, a logic behind this. I, I can't see the way it all plays out. Karma's too complex for that. But there is certainly a pattern. And then we get disappointed that I, I, can't always, I can't always do that. You know, even if then we get the idea that we want to, we want to be more loving, or we want to overcome our tendency to be anger, angry, or impatient, or uh, greedy, and um, we can't. And then we say, "Oh, what could help me with this? I'm going to experience the fruits of this. I don't want to die only having done this." Um, so that also turns the mind. Anybody resonating with these? I see some nods. Yeah, so we are the owner of our actions and we're going to inherit those results. And so to frame this in, you know, then to bring it to the Theravadan tradition, more the insight tradition, Tanjef um, says, all of our actions come out of the mind. You know, we eventually realize what we do comes from what we think. So if we want our actions to be good, the mind needs to be trained. This thought underlies all of your motivation for the practice. Right? We, we realize, oh, this thing's a little out of control and that's what's causing the problems. And we start wanting to train it. And this, if you're attracted to this kind of practice, this is a practice that's the training of the mind and the heart. And it's going to take a lot of love and compassion also because it's a process. So this can get us going. These are motivations where we realize we value something and now we're going to, you know, we, we start realizing how we're going to gather the energy for that. We also need motivation to stick with it, right? There's the motivation to start and there's the motivation to continue. Actually, there's a nice quote from Joseph Goldstein who says, there are only two things that will guarantee spiritual success, to start and to continue. It's true, right? <laughs> what else can you do? Every day, you're one day closer, and that's about all you can say. As long as you practice today, you'll be one day closer to something. I guess eventually you come to realize that it's not about the future, it's about the present, but <laughs> we, we start somewhere. <laughs> so motivations to stick with it start getting a little bit more specific a little bit more specific to our conditions, and I'll, I'll name some of those. And these are things that you may need to evoke as you go along. Um, so there's the uh, motivation that comes from heedfulness, you know, from being aware and kind of um, guarding of our actions, heedful of our actions. So once we see the dangers that come from unskillful or reckless actions, then we're motivated to do our best to avoid those actions. So these are all going to be related to the base motivation, of course. But if you want to encapsulate it in terms of heedfulness, I'm going to be heedful in my life. That can be useful. Um, they're not all heavy, though. There's also uh, humor. Humor is very important on the path and provides actually some motivation. Is that if we can be a little bit light about the uh, issues that our mind has, that can be really useful. So, um, in fact, if you have ever read, not the suttas, but the vinya, the um, 
monastic rules. I don't know that anybody would have had a reason to look at those, but it turns out that there are 227 rules for monks, and they're not they're not all like the precepts, you know, don't don't kill, don't steal. They're not all of that magnitude. Some of them are very um, specific to certain incidents that happened, and everyone in the Vinaya tells the story of why that um, came about. So there are rules like um, you can't monks can't teach nuns after dark, <laughs> and there was a story that went with that. And I think there's also one that you can't throw garlic over a wall. We wonder about the story for that one. <laughs> so, you know, and it all happened because people really did these things, and then problems happened, and so the Buddha said, look, let's not do this if we're monastics. So um, you realize when you read these how human people are. And, you know, we try so hard, even the people who ordained in the Buddhist time and were so, um, you know, really dedicated to the practice, uh, that tends to do something to your mind, and so then all your defilements start getting stirred up, and people do these really strange things, and the Buddha had to make rules. So it's good to remember that, just have some lightness. And and then, of course, maybe the flip side of that is that we can gently accept the rules that we're given. You know, we're told, okay, to do this, you really should follow at least these five precepts. And instead of saying, well, I'm only going to follow them when they're convenient, we can say, no, actually, given the way the mind is, I'm really going to be careful to follow these. I will gently accept that even if these are inconvenient, um, they're worth training by, because the mind is pretty out of control, and this is going to be helpful. Oh, here's another one that's useful that people even like, is a good motivator or a good way to stick with the path can be through healthy pride and even conceit. So, of course, we want to eventually overcome a sense of pride and conceit. I mean, even to the point of not feeling that we are a being to which things are happening. That's the most fundamental conceit, is the conceit of I am. But long before that, we can use these qualities in the sense of um, imitation of others in a skillful way, for example. So we can say, well, let's see, you know, that person could could do something that I really admire. They're human. I'm human. I could probably do that too. Or, you know, we, we look at our friends and say, wow, that person is more generous than I am, frankly. And I would like to cultivate that quality. So we watch and we imitate. This is healthy, healthy conceit. And then healthy pride would be um, the belief that uh, we're too good to do certain things. You know, we're tempted to do something that would be a little shady on the precepts, and then and we, instead of like actually doing it, or instead of getting down ourselves, we just say, you know what, that's just a thought. I am not gonna, you know, I'm I'm not gonna stoop to that level. I have more self-worth than acting on that particular thought. And so that's pride in a sense um, to sort of build yourself up as I'm at this level and I'm not gonna do that, but. We can use that as a way of thinking. Uh, Self-respect. Would you violate the precepts? Would you be a person who does that, or is that beneath you? So that can be a motivator. And if any of these don't resonate, you don't have to use them. But these are suggestions to keep us going. There's a story, actually, of um, Venerable Analio, who is an anger type. And anger is great at justifying itself. 
it's like a very good lawyer in our mind, and it'll tell us why it needs to be there and why it's so important that we have it. And so he, he was, he's an anger type, and as he observed his anger, his anger told him that um, he would be respected if he reacted with, you know, pride and, and a criticism of others for not doing things right. People would say, oh, he's got really high standards. I respect that in a person. He really he thought it would bring him respect to um, act angry and to criticize others, and he one day observed um, he was doing something else, but he was looking across the room, and somebody I think it was a junior monk or maybe an anagarika made a mistake and you know didn't do some procedure correctly, and one of the more senior monks um, uh, laid into him and said basically that. You know, you don't do it that way, you do it this way. He was very sharp with him. And Analia was watching this across the room, and all he could think, he didn't think, yeah, I respect that guy for upholding the rules. What he thought was, that looks really stupid. <laughs> you know, he just thought, it looks so stupid to get angry at this person who didn't do it right, but, you know, it's not like they were trying to, to get that other guy angry. So at that point he realized, Anger looks really stupid, and so he just that helped him drop it in himself. He realized I'm not I'm not going to look that stupid. So a little bit of conceit and pride there, but in a in a healthy way, not in an angry and critical way. So Tan Jeff calls this using the defilements to overcome the defilements, and we can at, at some level. We're also encouraged to take inspiration from people of the past like the Buddha or the great teachers, and to, you know, I guess in the Christian tradition they have that phrase, what would Jesus do? <laughs> we could have what would Buddha do, something like that. I don't know. Um, and again, that has a, certain, a little bit of unskillfulness to it, um, but it's really um, can be skillful to think in that way or to imagine um, my Tai Chi teacher used to say, you should imagine that you're practicing in front of the Tai Chi gods even when you're just practicing by yourself in your garage. And that would change the way I did the Tai Chi if I thought that the Tai Chi gods <laughs> were watching. <laughs> so there's something to that. And then on the positive side, we can see that as we practice, even in a short period of time, we will see that on average, our behavior is more skillful in some way. You know, we we uh, less often get angry or we more often remember to say thank you or to um, speak more softly as we're, as we're giving feedback to someone. Just little things like that. And it's very important to notice those and to appreciate those and use that as a, um, a motivation to go further, to continue applying energy because the amount of energy that we put in so far has actually had some fruit to it. So celebrate. It's good. So these start to become a little bit more specific, right? Probably some of those resonated and some of them not as much. It's going to depend on your particular mental type, your particular um, temperament. And so you can see as you go along what works for you. You may have particular ones that work well. And so this helps us to internalize our motivation and understand this is what works for me, and this is why I'm doing this. You don't need so much these abstract ideas of the four great thoughts or the um, 
the other more general things, the external things that um, spiritual traditions always offer, we won't always have a teacher or a group supporting us. We can have it theoretically in our mind, but you know we might be in some situation where that's just not available. And so we, we need to have something internally that keeps us going also. So once we have our motivation or we're going along with our motivation, you know, let's shift now to talking about what is it that we're doing with the energy? What is the, the spiritual faculty of energy or effort? Which is also called persistence, by the way. That's another term for this second spiritual faculty. I looked for the reference for this and I couldn't find it, but I'm pretty sure there's a quote in the Pali Canon that says, this path is for one with energy, not for one without energy. There's a Buddha saying that. So, maybe I'll just start with, you know, what is the effort? What is it that we're doing? And there's a sutta uh, that lays out a 12-step, it's not intended to be like the 12 steps, but I guess it could, um, a 12-step path that one goes through, and it starts with faith. So I, I picked it up because the spiritual faculties also start with faith. And it goes through a bunch of stuff at the beginning of the sutta about how you would uh, decide that a teacher is worthy of placing faith in. And then once you do that and you've decided to, then basically you've started. So this is a sort of a support of saying that the faculties start with faith. That's kind of the beginning. And then it lays out these 12 things that happened, happen. And so the first, I've just sort of divided them into three sets, even though that wasn't done in the sutta. But this is just Kim's overlay. So the first set is sort of the effort to learn the teachings. Um, so the, the first few steps go like this. Having investigated the teacher, he places faith in him. Filled with faith, he visits him and pays respect. Having paid respect, he gives ear. When he gives ear, he hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it. So these first steps are about kind of getting there and hearing. And we can, this is interesting because the Dharma has been spoken continually for 2,600 years in some parts, some way throughout time. Um, maybe in this country only for the last 50 years or something on a regular basis, although it's, it's been around longer than that in this country. But um, you didn't hear it until the moment you were ready, right? When did you first hear the Dharma? Um, so somehow you attuned to it at some point. Those it was able to enter your ears, and we don't necessarily know how all that happened. And you maybe not have had full faith at that time. I don't know, but at some point there's sort of this process where we're able to hear something once we're ready to believe it. There's this lovely Zen phrase: "When the student is ready, the teacher appears." And so there's a certain readiness, and then we hear the Dharma, and um, we don't memorize so much uh, these days, but remember, they didn't have written texts at the time of the Buddha. That didn't happen until hundreds of years after it. It was an oral tradition, and most people couldn't read or write anyway. So if you wanted to learn something, you listened really carefully, and you, um, you would memorize it. 
so that you could keep it in mind, because this teacher's coming through town today, and you don't know how long they're staying. And uh, you have to, if you want to keep those teachings in mind, you have to memorize them. These days, we have a whole different relationship to memory, because we have too much stuff coming in, and we can't remember it all. We store it all on our external devices, and reading and writing and all that. But it was a whole different thing. And it's kind of interesting to, um, to memorize teachings sometimes, even in the modern time. I recommend it. It's part of the practice. So there's a, a, a way that we need to learn the teachings. And again, there's this distraction in our cultures that we have so much stuff we're supposed to learn. We had to learn the whole scientific worldview to get here. And we've probably learned other spiritual disciplines, and we probably had to learn who knows what, but we've had to learn whole systems. Um, and now Kim sits up here and says, there's the five spiritual faculties, would you please memorize them? <laughs> and the Eightfold Path, and the Four Noble Truths, and you're thinking, oh God, it's another thing to learn. I have to take a class on this now. Um, so I apologize for that, and that that's the way it tends to arrive in people's minds. Um, which is, I think is unfortunate, because the structure of the teachings and the fact that there are these lists and the fact that we're supposed to think, orient our minds in certain ways actually is part of right view. And you can't progress on the path with just any old view. And if you're coming in with a um, Western psychological understanding where you've been told there are these regions of the brain and this is how cognition works, uh, it actually changes how you'll go down the path. So. I haven't found a better system than the one laid out by the Buddha, um, and it was worth it to me to, to learn it. Not that I have completely <laughs> to undertake the learning of it and to put that structure into my mind. So that's the first part. And then my in my overlay, the second part is the effort to reflect and inquire and investigate this structure, these teachings that we've learned, and figure out how that works for you. So the sutta continues, he memorizes it and examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings. And when he has gained a reflective acceptance of those teachings, zeal springs up. So there's a sense where we say, this is it. This, this, is, this is right. This works for me. And you may have had that moment in your practice. Some people, it's sort of at a I don't mean it only ha has to happen intellectually. It's a little bit how it's laid out here. Um, because of the background of this sutta, that's the way it was laid out. I won't go into all that. It could be at a heart level also, is that you come, you meet a teacher that has a certain spiritual presence, and they speak the Dharma in a certain way, and you feel in your heart, oh, this is it. <laughs> and it, you know, differently than you felt about all those other systems that you learned in your life at some point. Um, so that can happen at a more emotional level also. Um, but at some point we have to uh, decide that, you know, with, with a little bit of, I think, a critical eye, I don't think blind faith was ever really advocated by the Buddha, but at some level we have to decide that this makes sense for us in the mind or in the heart. And uh, therefore, that's this reflective acceptance. And then, then we decide that we're going to go forward with it. And it has a different effect if we just sort of say, well, here's the system I'm going to try this month, and not really have that wholeheartedness to it. It'll have a different effect. So then the third part of my overlay is that 
now that we've had zeal spring up, there is the effort to practice. So we have to make some effort to actually do it. Get to the cushion and follow a particular practice toward its fruition, whatever we choose, breathing or maybe a variety of them over the course of our practice. So the rest of these 12 steps go, when zeal has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives. Resolutely striving, he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. That's a little bit opaque um, in terms of what that means. And for Westerners, so sorry about the language, and for Westerners, all the stuff about striving and um, scrutinizing and zeal may be a little bit may sound a little bit too strong because a lot of us actually do too much of that and we need to back off in our practice. Um, and I'm going to talk about that more, about this interplay of when to apply zeal. I'm not going to get to it tonight. But um, there is a way in which there is something that we have to give to the practice. We can't actually just kind of lie down and open and say, okay, I get it, come enlighten me. <laughs> um, much as we might like that. Um, so there is something that we have to do, and we have to do a practice, and we have to work with the hindrances in the mind or whatever practice we've chosen. Um, so this is kind of the broad areas of applying effort, is to learn the teachings, to reflect and accept them, internalize them in some way, and then to do the practices. And there's, you know, there's more to be said, so we'll continue next time. Um, yeah. Are there any questions or comments at this point? The transition from faith toward energy, from valuing something to acting on it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.